Jesus, and those who do not know Jesus uh, or do not acknowledge Jesus, um, our, our job as Christians, maybe, is to help them to realize what exactly they're missing out on. Right? To not know Jesus, to not to not know God. So, uh, Jesus, on the other hand, uh, gives us every reason why we should love him. Uh, not saying, love me because of this, but as we think about what he uh, is doing for us every day and what he has done for us, you can't help but to love Jesus. So listen to verse 11 and verse 12. Think about, now, this is what we have to do. So we're thinking about literal sheep, right? Because these are shepherds and literal sheep. But then in your mind, allow the transition from God to be made to where you go from literal sheep to you and I being that sheep, if you will, and Jesus being our shepherd. So from a, from a literal physical sheep to a spiritual mindset, right? What has Jesus done for us? What is Jesus doing for us? If we are those literal sheep, what is he literally doing for us spiritually? What has he done for us today? What is he doing for us every day uh, of our lives in service to him? All right, we'll start. Verse 11. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. So, uh, God is, is informing us that it's not just that he searches, he's seeking. That's a, that's a deeper uh, element of searching. You can search for something and look, and, and but when you seek it out, you're, you're following, you know, footprints. You're you're, you're following uh, everything you can imagine that is necessary to help you follow that trail of that missing sheep. So he says, "I'm going to seek you out. I'm not going to just search for you, but I will seek you out, pursue you, uh, come after you." Verse twelve: As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep. So I will care for my sheep and will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. What does it take to search for and seek out sheep who have been, now notice it's a cloudy and a gloomy day, who have been hurt, they're despondent, they're they're just, you know, why are you over here when you, you should be over there? They're lost. They're, they're all these things you can think of, of gloominess. What does it take for a shepherd to seek and search that sheep out? And the answer is in verse 12, care. Because God cares for us. So what is God's motive? I love you. I care for you. And that's why he would go out in a, in a gloomy day, to seek and search us out. That's why he would go into, uh, you know, uh, if you will, inclement weather to seek and search. Whatever it takes. It doesn't matter what the surroundings are. It doesn't matter where we find ourselves. I think uh, the, the conversation Sunday morning over the, the mud pits, you know. If, if you're in the mud pit, he's going to come to the mud pit to get you out. That's what Jesus does for us. And that's what we're learning in verse 12. What's the motive? The motive is... Because he cares uh, for us. The next one is verse 13. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them to their own land. And I will feed them on the, the mountains of Israel by the streams and all the inhabited places of the land. Now, these sheep that are scattered, Israel and Judah, 
Why were they scattered? Because of sin. Because they were so, they were so disgusting to God in their sinful ways, uh, and, and so horrible in their sinful, that God scattered them, right? He allowed them to be scattered, taken off into captivity by Assyria and also by uh, Babylon, the Babylonians. But now he's saying, well, you know, now I'm going to bring them back. So, so here God now is saying, okay, you, you're over here because basically you were, you were filthy and you, and why are you over there? And it make it makes you think about why in the world am I spending time, you know, in in Rome when I should be over here in in Jerusalem? Well, why are you over there? And the answer would would be from a literal standpoint, well, because we were scattered abroad. Why were we scattered abroad? Well, because we were so vile to God, so disgusting that God allowed us allowed us to be taken off into captivity uh, to spew us from the land. But then God is saying, why are you over there? And he comes to get them and brings them back. The good shepherd will bring his people. He'll bring Judah back to uh, the promised land, back to the places where they need to be. And what happens when you get um, the, the prodigal son? He was out. What was the, the problem? He was, you know, longing to eat the um, the food, if you will, that pigs were eating, the slop that pigs were eating. He was hungry. And that's where this this contest goes. When I, when I get you back, I'm gonna feed you. Right? I know, I know what you need. Right? So verse, verse 14. I will feed them in a good pasture and their grazing ground will be on the mountain heights of Israel. There they will lie down in good grazing ground and they will feed in rich pastures on the mountains of Israel. Notice what kind of ground. Well, a shepherd seeks out good grazing ground. And that's the kind of ground he brings the sheep to. And the sheep, um, they trust the shepherd to take them, to lead them into good grazing places or good grazing grounds. Verse 15, I will feed my flock and I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord God. Now, sheep will not lie down and rest if they're being bothered or agitated by stuff. I'm going to talk more about that later. Um, it's very important that they're in the right kind of environment. So it was imperative that the good shepherd ensured that the sheep were in a good uh, environment, if you will. One that uh, proves to be a blessing to them. Remember what the bad shepherds were not doing. They were not feeding the sheep. They were not bringing the sheep to good grazing ground. They would find good grazing ground and they would feed themselves. But they would leave the sheep starving and thirsty, and all the things that they ought not have been. Verse 16, he'll bind up the injured. That's really important. I will seek the lost, bring back the scattered, bind up the brokenhearted, excuse me, broken, and strengthen the sick, but the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with judgment. The fat and the strong are the bad shepherds. Right, so the bad shepherds who are fat and all, okay, because they've been eating all the food. But the ones that, the weak and the feeble, these ones in verse 16, the scattered, the broken, um, those that are, that are sick and weak, the good shepherd says, I'm gonna sp- take the time to, to care for that sheep and build it up. Right, now that takes patience, it takes compassion, it takes time, doesn't it? Because a weak and a feeble sheep uh, it, it doesn't have that, uh, that ability to, to move too far from one grazing ground to the next. You have to be patient and allow that sheep to 
not only uh, to to eat its its meal, but to have the proper amount of rest. And maybe it has to rest a little bit longer than the other sheep. Uh, but the point of the matter is that the good shepherd makes sure they have everything that they need. And that's really important, right? And the ones that are injuring them, in order for sheep to graze and to uh, to really to lay down and really have comfort, in order for that to happen, uh, they need to be at peace. And again, I'm going to come back to that that idea here in just in just a moment. I want to go to Jeremiah. No, wait. Let's before we do that, let's go to verse. Let's go down to verse 25. I almost skipped for just a moment with an idea in mind. Verse 25, and I will make a covenant of peace with them. Uh, excuse me, and eliminate eliminate harmful beasts from the land so that they may live securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. Now that would make it really difficult to sleep in the woods if you know that you have harmful beasts around you. It's kind of like camping uh, in, you know, near bear's den. It's a little more difficult to sleep at night <laughs> unless you have a really big gun. But even then, there's this eerie feeling, right? And so uh, God says, I'm going to remove the eerie feeling by removing... The wild beast from the land. Whatever could harm you, I'm going to remove that from you. And then in verse 28, And they will no longer be a prey to the nations and the beasts of the earth will no will not devour them, but they will live securely and no one will make them afraid. And it's really important because here, they're going off into captivity and they were, they're considered prey by the, you know, by the Babylonians, if you will. And God says that, that will no longer happen. My people will no longer be prey. Instead, I'm going to rid them of all the wild beasts. I'm going to protect them even from infectious disease, if you will, uh, from the infections, the pests, the things that uh, keeps the sheep from being able to lay down securely. And then we'll finish this um, chapter out in verse 29 and following. And I will establish for them a rene- renewed, re- um, excuse me, yeah, renowned planting place, and they will not again be victims of famine in the land, and they will not endure the insults of the nations anymore. And this is really important. When were the sheep um, fattened? Well, they were fattened during a famine. So all the food that was available went to the bad shepherds, right? And so it's not just a famine now here's extra suffering by way of oppression. The bad shepherds were feeding themselves. They abandoned the sheep. The sheep were weakened and, and scattered and uh, had difficulty. And there was a famine on top of that. In verse 30, Then they will know that I, the Lord, their God, am with them, and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord God. As for you, my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, you are men, and I am your God, declares the Lord God. So again, going from from a, a physical sheep to the spiritual sheep. Have you ever been um, in the midst of um, of examples like this, where you have shepherds who are just simply feeding themselves? And um, it's a feeding frenzy amongst them, but the church is starving. 
Think about that. How difficult that would be that the congregation is starving and the sheep are going, the shepherds rather, are going through a feeding frenzy for themselves. That's not a good sign, is it? That's never any good. I want to go to Jeremiah 33. Within the same context and idea of the Babylonian uh, captivity, in Jeremiah 33, and we're going to look at verse 13, uh, it, the, a good shepherd counts the sheep. In other words, he knows where the sheep are at all times, and he, he spends the time counting them. You know, how many sheep am I supposed to have? Okay, I have 12. How many sheep do I have? I have 12. We're good. But if you have 10, you, you've made a calculated error somewhere. So throughout the day, the good shepherd counts his sheep. He doesn't just count them in the morning and then count them again at night. He counts the sheep throughout the day as well. Jeremiah 33 and verse 13. In the cities of the hill country, in the cities of the lowland, in the cities of Negev, in the cities of Benjamin, in the environs of Jerusalem, and in the cities of Judah, the flock shall again pass under the hands of the one who numbers them, says the Lord. So Jesus, this is what we're getting to with Jesus, that Jesus is saying, I know you. I know where you are. I know where you've been. And, and I know when you've been scattered, and I know when you're struggling, and I know when you're weak, and I know when you're suffering, and I know what you need, and I know what you want, and I know what's going to pull you away, I know what's going to keep you strong. I know my sheep. So go to John 10 now, and Jesus will say that very thing, that I know my sheep. So everything that this shepherd uh, does, he, he rescues and gathers them, he seeks them out, he helps them to lie down in, in a green or good pasture. Uh, he binds up the injured. He strengthens the weak. He protects the, uh, all the sheep. He makes sure they don't have any infections. He makes sure they're not uh, being um, invaded by parasites or bugs. Uh, they are his own. He counts his sheep continuously. Jesus says in John 10 and verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus didn't just lay down his life. I'm, I want to, I'm going to talk about this and I'm going to come right back to it in just a moment. But I want to go to verse 17 and verse 18, uh, in here. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my, my life, um, that I may take it again. Think about that. John, John 10 verse 17. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life. So, so the Father doesn't just love Jesus and the Godhead doesn't just love it, you know, itself because it, because they're a perfection and purity. But the Godhead loves itself because of the sacrifice that is made for the people, for God so loved the world. You see, that, that's it. What, what happens in Isaiah? If Isaiah 53 verse 10, uh, the Father was pleased to Jesus if he would render himself a guilt offering. If he would do that because of the love, that's how much love the, the Godhead has for us. That, 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 that amazing scripture comes out of that, that passage of, of, of sacrifice where, where the Father says the Father loves us so very much. The Son loves us so very much. The Holy Spirit loves us so very much that the plan, the eternal plan was to crush the Godhead if the Godhead would offer itself as a sacrifice for you and for me. If that isn't love, 
And then you and I say it, we don't, I don't know if we all mean it, you know, well, we don't deserve it. Well, it's true, right? We didn't deserve it, right? We're thankful for it, but how many of us love God so much that he would do, I mean, to think about what, what it took for the Godhead to arrange and allow all of this to happen for us. So, so let's, let's look at three, three parts of this. One, Jesus. Well, we, we get, you know, we, we, we've seen stories and we've, we've watched movies and we, we read the Bible, the sacrificial lamb and the amazing sacrifice that Jesus Christ made. And we say to ourselves, boy, I'm so, thank you, thank you God that I wasn't the one that had to go through that. And he did that. The, the blow, the stroke was due me, right? Isaiah 53 and other passages. It was, I was supposed to get that, right? But when I got that, here's the difference. When, when I went through that painful process of being executed on the cross, I deserved it. It, w- it wasn't going to save me. It was what I deserved. And then I would have the punishment of hell on top of that. But Jesus saved me. See, he took my place. Now, number two, the Father. The restraint the Father had to use. To not just say, oh, you know what, this, forget it, you guys aren't even worth this. How horrible you people are, speaking of those people in that day, right? How horrible to, to, to take Jesus, my son, to spit on him in his face and to, to beat him and you say, oh, well, the Father knew it was going to happen. And, well, you know, there are things, sometimes we know something's going to happen. Like you drive and you go, oh, I know I'm going to run out of gas. And, and, but there's not a gas station for another few miles and you run out of gas. It doesn't make it any less inconvenient because you knew it was going to happen, right? Okay. So the restraint that the father had to use and even to hold back, uh, the angelic realm, if you will. No, we're going to let him, we're going to let him suffer and die and, and be pleased to crush him because the people that are drilling the nails into his hand, I love those people. But don't you love your son? Why would you let the, why would you let that, you know, so then there's a confusion in the human mind. And the Holy Spirit just bless Jesus, endow him with, a, with an amazing, uh, miraculous gift and let him, yeah, let him come down off the cross. But no, the Holy Spirit doesn't. So, the gift to us is not that he was murdered is that he laid his life down. Right? There's a, there's a difference. It's not that he didn't uh, desire the cross. He longed for that cross. There was the human side. I get it, Luke 22. But he longed for that cross. And what drove him to it? What held him to the cross? Love, yeah. Right? Because he loved us. He could have come down if he wanted to. Godhead could have stopped the whole thing. He already told us that. He said, I could call angels, legions of angels and, and destroy everybody and be done with this. But I'm not going to do that because I love you. So again, verse 17, it, it says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, uh, that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to, to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. The commandment I receive from my Father. And so Jesus is in complete and total control. The Father is in complete, the Godhead is in complete and total control. Look at verse 14, John 10. I am the good shepherd. 
And I know my own, and my own know me. I love that verse. But does that verse really apply to me? Think about that for just a moment. Do we, do we know God? And what is it, what does it mean to know God? Right? Think about that. For just think about that on, on many different levels. What does it mean to know God? So, so there's people who there are people who um, who know of God, but that's not the same as knowing God, is it? In fact, it's totally different. Isn't it? Totally different. You can know of God, know about God, but not know God, right? But as a Christian who knows God, what does it mean to know God? What does that do uh, to our 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 mind? What does it What does it do to our mindset, our actions? What does it do to uh, the relationship when it comes to sin or not sinning, repenting or not repenting? What does it do to us to know God? What does it do to my heart to know God? What does it do to uh, to my mind, to be in a relationship with God. My sheep know me. So when I'm in trouble, does knowing God means I know where to run to? Right? Or do I run away from God? Right? Uh, when, when I'm having difficulty sleeping, is the first thing that I do is to go to the God I know? Or do I go somewhere else? When I'm being pestered and bothered, do I go to God or do I go somewhere else? In other words, do I have my own set of rules and remedies for my own troubles? And then when that doesn't work, then I go to God. Maybe I don't know God as well as I ought to know God, right? To know God. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. My sheep know who I am. And sheep will not respond to shepherds they do not know. Shepherds can call, but if it's not their shepherd, they know the voice of their shepherd. They hear the voice of their shepherd continuously, and they respond to that shepherd. To know God. Jesus says that my sheep know me. Verse 7, John 10. Jesus therefore said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. We studied the door. What does that mean? That means protection, security. You can sleep at night in that pen. You know that whatever comes, whatever comes your way, you know the door is covered. You know Jesus is that door and you know that your shepherd is there and you can go to sleep because he's on watch. And nothing's coming in. Nothing is coming in that's going to harm you or hurt you. He also says about that door, if you will, and down in verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pastures. He's that door and nothing is going, again, to come in through that door that doesn't belong in there. So you know that when you go to sleep and you... Um, um, Sleep next to other sheep. You know it's sheep. It's not a wolf. You don't have to worry about it. Right? It's not a wolf. 
And again, verse 10, and then I want to talk about laying down his life again. Verse 10 says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and might have it abundantly. If if I know Jesus, would, would I think, would I find more, I would like to use the word abundant living, but would I find more joy in living away from Christ or more joy in living with Christ? So it's true what the world says. The world says from a worldly perspective, Christians don't have fun. That's not true, is it? I think, do you know any Christian that doesn't have fun? I don't know any Christian that doesn't have fun. Not those who love God, because it's not just, it's not just fun, but it's fulfillment, right? It's, is it really, do we really have an abundant life? Something to think about. You know, why do people leave Jesus? Well, they're looking for an abundant life. But you can't find it outside of Christ. But, but somewhere there has been this deception to uh, to trick Christians into believing that we do not have a full and abundant life, that the full and abundant life is outside of Christ. And look at how many Christians have been de- deceived by that lie. Right? Think about that. When I was younger, I used to say, well, you know, the difference is we have fun as Christians. We just don't have to run from the cops. <laughs> <laughs> right? And we have lots of fun. Abundance, though. What, is it, what does it mean then? I want to talk just a moment and open up the floor for comments if there are any. What does it mean in Christ to have a full and abundant life as opposed to being in the world and having a what we call a full and abundant life? Is there a difference? Is there a difference between the two? Um, and so the, either the Bible's right or the Bible's wrong. Now we know the Bible's right, but how can we, how can we prove then that Christians have a full and abundant life as opposed to the world? They do not have a full and abundant life. Because Jesus said, I came to give my sheep a full and abundant life. What would cause a Christian to leave Jesus for this ch- chasing this full and abundant life when they already have it here? Okay? And obviously it's because they don't see. So let's talk about it. What would be the difference in living, as you've been living in, in Christ, what is the difference in living in Christ, having a full and abundant life, as opposed to living outside of Christ? You remember the days when you weren't, you weren't a Christian, as, as opposed to living outside of Christ and having an absent life, one that's absent of abundance from God. Any, any comments? Yes. Oh, you're bring a, Mike, do you in a second here? Yes. And then leaving. Uh, either way, just being being away from Christ. Whether you are, whether you've never become a Christian, or you are a Christian and now you've left Jesus and you're living outside of Christ. Either way, what is the difference between the two? For the abundance I find is that you can have joy in no matter what circumstance you're in. No matter what, you can find contentment and joy being in Christ, regardless of what's happening around you in your life. Okay. So you have, That's would, one you, way. would you use the word fulfillment in, yeah. in oh. every, in every moment? 
of your life? Say again? Fulfillment. Would you say that you find fulfillment in every moment of your life? There's no fulfillment outside of Christ. Right. Okay. Exactly. So fulfillment. So there's, so we don't know what tomorrow holds, do we? It's, it's all vanity. It's all vain. We do not know what tomorrow holds. So when someone says, well, you know, um, I don't, we as Christians say, I don't know how I could have made it through this without God. And that's true, right? Um, and, and, and so, but where is that abundance for us though? What, where is that? What, what makes you today, um, I'm trying to, I'm trying to state the question in a way that, um, that is best fitting for this, this class. What, what makes you feel or, or what is the difference between being in Christ and and fulfilled versus being outside of Christ and fulfilled. Let me just say this: it's a smaller cup. <laughs> okay, outside of Christ, maybe the cup's only two ounces <laughs> or one ounce. But in Christ, you got a sixteen ounce thing, and it's full. Right? Go ahead, brother. You know, uh, to me, it seems like you in Christ, you have a real sense of security, as opposed to when you're out of Christ. You kind of depend on a lot of worldly things like money, you know, you, your job or whatever. All these things become a real security blanket for you. But the real security is in Christ. You, you know, you can have peace knowing that, you know, this is what the whole thing is about. It's not about all this. So I just think the real sense of security is the difference. Okay. So in other words, if I could, in Christ, there's no deception, right? Outside of Christ, there's complete deception. It's Satan's lie, isn't it? Satan's lie is that you can be outside of Christ and be completely secure and have an abundant life and be satisfied and fulfilled. That's a lie. That's an absolute impossibility. It it can't happen. But how many Christians believe that? Well, you would never leave Christ if you really believe that. But that's the, that's the deception of Satan. The deception of Satan is to cause us to believe that this scripture isn't true. That Christians don't have a good shepherd, and the world does have a good shepherd, and that, and that Christians are are completely, uh, if you will, um, living by faith, uh, which is not evidence, but in actuality we are living by faith, which is evidence. Right, the substance of our relationship with Christ is based on all of the evidence, right? But when you leave Christ. We fall into the trap of believing that we're okay, right? And we're not. Again, the cup that Satan gives you is it's a little teeny one, right? The cup that God gives you is overflowing. It's a bucket full of abundance, and it's overflowing continuously. We don't always see it, but it's there. It's continual. It, it's, 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 um, it never goes away. It never becomes empty. Ever. Outside of Christ, it's never full. It will never become full. In fact, it's just a, again, it's a very small, small cup. And it gives you a sense of satisfaction. A, a sense of this or a sense of that. But when you compare eternity, right, that's the next side of that bucket that's overflowing. When you compare eternity, there is no comparison. Right? So it's not that we have um, the abundance in heaven. We have the abundance now 
and transition into the heavenly abundance. In other words, it never goes away, and it's the only consistent or constant thing in our lives, that being God and the abundance that we receive. So, so why is it that the world, how can Christians, I'll go back to Christians, how, where, where is the deception? What, what happens in uh, our, our minds that makes us grow up and begin to believe that maybe there is fulfillment and abundance outside of Christ and not necessarily inside of Christ? Yes. I think it comes from knowing that as Christians, if we walk in the light, his blood will continue to cleanse us. So when you're outside of Christ, I think if people are honest with themselves, they know they're not living a righteous life. They try to ignore the fact that I got sin in my life. Mm -hmm. But instead of trying to do anything about it, they just ignore it. But we realize the truth. The Bible teaches that the difference between the law, those with the law and those without the law, the law opens your eyes. Mm -hmm. You understand. Mm -hmm. I got sin in my life. And with this sin, I'm going to go to hell. And I think that's the difference between those of us that are truly trying to stay faithful is to know that I don't want those sins to be called into account on the day of judgment. I know that because of Christ and his blood that continues to cleanse me, that's the abundant life. Mm -hmm. There is no, um, what's the word? We're not slaves to sin anymore, basically. Mm-hmm. So willful, <clears throat> willful ignorance is what you're talking about. That we all know that we have sin, but we, we close our eyes, a blind eye, to what we know to be true. And that is, we're going to stand before our maker with that sin. And you don't have to think about that until you're ready to die, right? And, and so, um, but sin is fun, right? So is that where the abundance comes in, right? Um, so you think about the apostles. Let, let's think about just just for a moment that when you figure it out, you'll die for this physically. In other words, if someone, when, when you, if you were in the days of the apostles and, 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 the, and you were going to go to jail for Jesus and you, and you were going to be executed for Jesus, you know those early saints? When you go back and you study martyrdom in the early saints, no big deal. Take it home. I've been trying to get there anyway. There's only one way to get there. Martyrdom became a true blessing to them. There's the human side. I don't really want that, but... If that's what it has to be, then that's what it has to be. Because they understood that true abundance and satisfaction is not, it's not just physical. It's physical and spiritual and emotional. It's a holistic view of life. And that's what you're talking about. You, you cannot dumb down or release the spiritual side of your world and only live in the flesh because humans are body, soul, and flesh. In the flesh, we're all three: or body, soul, and emotion. Excuse me, spirit. Body, soul, and spirit. Here we are. We're all three. So there's the body, the physical body. There's the spirit that goes back to God. All spirits, right? God gives the breath of life, and then there's the soul that doesn't die. You can't just forget about the soul 
and live to feed the flesh by following the emotion. And what happens is when we, when you look at life from a skewed view and you don't view it holistically, body, soul, and spirit, it's easy to walk away from Christ. But when you look at your life holistically and see it as body, soul, and spirit, you know that you are accountable. And then you find satisfaction and happiness and abundance in Christ. Now, here's the abundance part. Here's the addition to the abundance part. You live your life without feeling condemned. Right? Without feeling self-condemned. Because it's easy, right? You you make a mistake. You ask God for forgiveness. John, 1 John chapter 1 uh, tells us, verses 7 through 9, that God is faithful to forgive. So you know it's forgiven and you don't have to worry about it. You live your life without guilt. Free of guilt. Now, that's abundance, right? But to ignore the guilt, to ignore the sin, to ignore the soul, you know you're lying to yourself. And there is no happiness, fulfillment, or abundance in lying to yourself because you live in fear. Perfect love casts out fear. You live in fear. Every human being that lives their lives outside of Christ come to the point where they finally have to face the thing they've feared for their entire lives. But they hid it. They masked it over. And that is standing before their maker. Every human being. Even, even what is his name? Carl, whatever the last name. Uh, famous atheist. Famous, if you will. Infamous. Uh, atheist. What is it? What is his last name? Yeah, Sagan. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, I had a different name in my mind, but Carl Sagan. You know, in, in the last days, he had this interview, and it was all about, yeah, I can't wait to meet God. If there's a God, then I'm going to... And he just kept talking about God. <laughs> See, he talked about him in the negative, but if you don't believe in him, there's no there's no conversation. What's the point of the discussion? Why are you asking me about God? There's no God, so what are you talking about? Well, how, how do you feel with your, you know, you got brain issues now, and you're about to die, and you're about to meet your maker. How do you feel about that? Meet my maker? There's no maker. I am the maker. Why would he, why would he even engage in the conversation? Because he knew. <laughs> right? He knew. And, and here's something, it's something that we all know. Because what we do know is this. When you look at that old ball of fire up in the sky, you didn't put it there. Right? And you can go through every scientific understanding or, or diagram or explanation as to how that thing got there. But one thing you know is you didn't put it there. <laughs> right? And you aren't holding it there. And you know the earth is, is ready to ignite whenever God commands because the core is hotter than the sun. And you didn't put it there. <laughs> right? Just the little things. The little things says, are you really ready to meet God? And when Christians come around and we say, are you ready to meet God? They don't want to talk about it. They're like Felix. Go away and when I find more time, I'll, I'll talk to you. But I don't want to talk to you about God. Because no one wants to face the reality. But living our lives holistically as Christians, that's part of the abundance. That we are truly free indeed. To be truly free indeed. To live your life in such a way to where you know you have this relationship with the Creator. And you know one day you're going home. But you can call it home. Because that's your true eternal home. 
That's abundance. And then you can live your life stress-free. You can live your life uh, without being kept or held captive uh, by the world and held captive by things that you know aren't true. And so we have this relationship with God. He gives us this abundant life, and it could not have happened had he not laid his life down for the sheep. So for the sheep to be able to lay down, I'm going to talk about this next week, they've got to be free of fear. If sheep are not free of fear, they do not lay down. Jesus made it possible for his sheep to lay down because we're free of fear. God is so good to us. God loves us so, so very much. What he did for us is much deeper than we think about every single day. But in order to have true abundance, I'm closing with this, in order to have true abundance, it simply means to look at your life from a holistic viewpoint, body, soul, and spirit, to all of it combined into one, and then to be in perfect unity from within. Perfect unity from within, as opposed to being divided from within. I don't want to think about my soul. I just want to feed my flesh. That doesn't work, and we know it doesn't work. The lesson is yours. Thank you for your time tonight. Uh, I pray, God, that something said encourage you to uh, continue on your quest in Christ and to just continue to fall deeper in love with, with our Lord and our Savior. Uh, being in complete submission to him. So in a moment, we're going to have a devotional. Uh, the invitation is uh, available to you if you would like to surrender to Christ in the waters of baptism. That opportunity will be there for you. If you have trouble in your life and you would like prayers made in your behalf, that opportunity will be there for you as well. Thank you for your time this evening, and God bless each and every one of you.